between hyperfinancialization and the growth of automation in the world trade and investments have become an ever more prevalent and important tool for the mass market but the relative knowledge of professional and hobby's investors is different and so is the access to opportunities coin rule empowers regular people to compete with professional traders by automating investments without having to learn a single line of code Stanek Hoffler is the co-founder of CoinRule and joins the show to discuss what he and his team have built. Stanek, welcome to the show. Hi Jeff, it's my pleasure being here. You work on CoinRule, which builds automated crypto trading bots, and I've dealt some with trading systems and usually the kinds of trading systems that I've dealt with there's a human that executes complex orders and maybe those orders are combinations of options and then securities and you have a position that is a combination of a put and maybe a, a long position but it's not entirely automated you build systems that are entirely automated can you describe the prototypical trading bot and what it would do to make money sure so first of all coinrule is not a typical bot i would say we are pretty much a saas platform right so as a user what you can do you create a rule right it can be a simple rule like every day buy bitcoin whatever or it can be even a more complex rule like if you know any coin on the market has price increased by let's say 5% and trading volume let's say increase another 5% you know and ma9 meaning moving average 9 crossing moving average 50 in a time frame of 5 minutes then buy that coin right which is meeting those criteria so this is what you can do as a user technically what we do we have an engine we call it the arbiter which is essentially running all these rules in a loop you know so all the rules of all the users they are still being evaluated based on you know the complexity of the rule and of course based on the the market data market conditions on the market and then you know if the rule or if the condition is triggered or set of conditions is triggered then you know we pretty much place an order automatically right so as a user you need to connect your crypto exchange right because we don't touch your funds so for example you need to have account on binance let's say then you need to create api keys on binance and connect those api keys in our interface to our system that's pretty much what we do you know we are evaluating market conditions and then we are placing orders on your behalf using those api keys now, with a combination of rules, I can essentially have a fully automated system that does all my trading for me, and I don't have to do much intervention. I wouldn't have to create new rules over time. Do you have any, well, I know you have some combinations of rules that can lead to successful and profitable trading strategies. Talk to me about some of the combinations of rules that can lead to a successful trading strategy. 
I think it's important to say that, you know, we currently only work with crypto, of course, and only with spot exchanges. So you can trade spot trading pairs and also a couple of futures, right, on Binance futures, etc. That's pretty much the only thing you, what you can do. But it's not the only thing, right? It comes with a lot of opportunities. CoinRule, you know, was designed as Lego boxes, right? So you can build whatever you want to build on top of our engine, on, on top of our wizard, let's say. And there is really like thousands of combinations of, you know, what you can create. And of course, we provide, let's say, a list of strategies, or we call it templates, uh, rule templates. So you can choose whatever you want. But of course, you kind of need to know what's going on, right? Um, I mean, the aim of CoinRule is to become a leader in crypto and not only crypto trading automation, because we are going to move to, you know, other kind of assets in the near future. But generally, you as a user, you have kind of full um, control over your rules. You know, it's not a black box, right? You don't just put money inside, you know, and just hoping that you will earn, right? You really need to know what you are doing. And of course, we are trying to teach you, right? We have the learning center. We are still trying to improve that, of course, to provide some video tutorials. You know, we do regular catch-ups with, with our users. We have the Telegram community uh, where actually users can each, you know, teach each other. So we are trying to build the community and help users to learn um, to be better traders, right? But at the end, what we do, we, we just provide a tool and you are pretty much responsible for, you know, playing with that. Of course, you know, what we try to achieve, of course, is uh, kind of being a gamified platform, right? So you actually learn by playing, let's say. What does it mean, right? We provide a demo exchange, which is essentially a mirror of Binance exchange in terms of market data. So we are, you know, watching market data on Binance and replicating, you know, market conditions into our demo exchange. And then you can, you know, pretty much learn and build your strategies on top of this demo exchange and you don't, you know, risk anything, right? But generally, as I said, you need to build your own strategies on your own. So if I pick a strategy like buying the dip in a bull market, that alone is not sufficient to create a strategy that's that's going to actually earn me profit. Like I need to like select multiple strategies or because you have these strategies that people can can select and just have the bots execute them. How successful are those pre-baked strategies? What I would say, like those strategies, you know, they are based on, you know, backtested results from TradingView, right? But still, you know, it's based on history, right? So there is an assumption that, you know, the strategy will work all the time. That's not true, right? Like the market is evolving, market is moving a lot, and it always depends on the entrance, right? They are typically relatively often fake signals, right? So it seems that the strategy, you know, triggers the signal. And then, I mean, it actually triggers, 
But then instead of the price moving up, it's actually moving down for a while. And then maybe the trend is, you know, correct. But depending on the exit side, when, you know, what you set as a logic or, you know, set of conditions for closing your position, then of course, depending on that, you know, you can earn or you can even lose, right? Of course. So the basic is, you know, you should always think about, you know, stop losses, right? But generally, you know, no strategy is like covering 100%, you know, the success, right? Of course, you know, we are trying to improve those strategies as you go. You know, we also have, we are running our own fund on CoinRule, you know, using our own strategies. And we share pretty much those strategies as well with our community. And also our, you know, really like pro users, users that are with us, let's say four years, they also, you know, share their strategies. And I mean, they know it's not like black and white, right? It's not like that. Sometimes it's really, really good. Sometimes, especially on the bear market like now, it's a bit worse, right? So they, you know, typically do less trades, you know, they, they are trying to protect the, you know, the risk, right? So if, if there is a risk, potential, you know, strange behavior on the market, they just, you know, stop using some of their rules, you know, they pause them and then they run just some, let's say, rebalancing rules for that moment or for that while. And then when, you know, there is another trend, they can, you know, re-enable them and, you know, that's it. It's not like, as I said, it's not a black box, right? You need to kind of take a look at your rules, you know, you need to follow them, let's say on even like daily basis, like most of our users, they are following their rules every day, even like more than once a day, you know, and then, you know, tweak them, they are playing with them, you know, trying to understand how the system works, you know, that's the funny part. So let's walk through the engineering behind a simple strategy. So you mentioned I can just give my API key to have trades be executed on my behalf. Can you talk through what the Binance API enables and just explain what the engineering stack is behind a typical bot? Mm -hmm. I mean, Binance API is, you know, coming with a lot of opportunities, of course. But, you know, we try to be, let's say, platform for masses, right? So we don't over-engineer everything. We just do simple things, but powerful things, right? So pretty much what we focus on is just simple spot trading, limit orders, market orders. That's it, you know? And then, of course, as I mentioned as well, like you can also trade futures. But again, it's very, very limited what you can do in terms of, you know, how we use Binance API, you know, or not only Binance, like all the exchanges we support, it's about like 10 exchanges currently. It's also because, you know, like all those exchanges, they have different things, right? So we kind of need to unify them into one single interface. So this is the simple thing. Then, of course, what's happening on our background, that's very interesting and it's very powerful. So pretty much this arbiter, this engine is, you know, checking the market data conditions, right? We have, you know, a couple of processes, couple of things we run on multiple machines. And one of them is the collector. The collector, you know, what it is doing is pretty much, you know, collecting data from all the exchanges 
in real time and, you know, storing them in cache, right? Currently, we don't actually store historical data, right? That's actually subject to change. But currently, we only keep the current snapshot of the market data. In this case, you know, in real time, we are getting updates and all these arbiters, and we are talking about, you know, dozens of machines or pods, Kubernetes pods, let's say, on those machines, we run all these rules, right? We have a queue, actually multiple queues, and then we process those rules in those queues, you know, in a loop, let's say. We just, you know, run the rule, then run it again, then run it again, etc., etc. And every time we run the rule, we check the, you know, the market data, right? And we check them from the cache. So in that case, you know, we know, okay, let's say there is a condition if Bitcoin has price increased by 5%, right? So let's say in, in a time frame of 30 minutes. So we know, okay, we use the 30 minutes candle in that case. We take a look at the close price of the candle on the previous close candle, which is, let's say, X. And then we look at the current market price, which is changing in real time. And then we calculate the, the percentage, right? And then we know, okay, the condition is met, the condition is not met. Depending on that, you know, we continue processing the rule. And essentially, that's the simple thing what we are doing. The complexity in the system is actually based on the amount of conditions you can create and also the combination of conditions, actions, and operators, right? Because you can combine, let's say, multiple conditions, then you can buy, and then anytime if something else happens, you can sell or, you know, you can wait another five minutes. And then, you know, like there is a, a lot of opportunities, a lot of combinations, and pretty much everything is is happening on, on the engine. And then we just send, you know, simple instructions, you know, if the condition is placed, met, and then the action should be triggered, we just say, okay, let's send this limit order. One on, you want to buy 100% of, of that coin, let's say Bitcoin, with your USDT wallet. Okay, this is your amount, you know, this is your balance on the wallet. This is what we want to send, right? So we send a single, you know, simple instruction, and that's it. So... Can you help me understand the mapping between user rules and Kubernetes pods? Like if I create one rule, just talking more detail about how these rules are executed and at what rate you would scale up, like how many new rules would have to be created to scale up your Kubernetes pod count, for example. This is a great question. We actually migrated to Kubernetes quite recently, like three weeks ago, two weeks ago, actually, before we were using, you know, different EC2 instances. But of course, the scalability was a bit more complicated. So we moved to Kubernetes, and essentially, we are still playing with performance, right? We want to achieve our SLAs we, we defined, which is pretty much the rule is being evaluated every up to five seconds on free plan. Right? On paid plans, it's even like three seconds or one second. So as often as one second, let's say, you, we want to achieve that your rule will be evaluated, which is normal, let's say, on a pro plan, which is our highest plan, because on that pro plan, we 
pretty much dedicate a queue and a pod for that specific user. So all the rules of that user are running on that single pod. In terms of other users and other plans, it depends on the plan and the speed we, we want to achieve. But generally, I can, I think, say that currently we run up to six queues per plan per region. Because, of course, what we need to deal with is like multi-regional setup, of course, because, you know, like there are restrictions, geolocation restrictions, for example, on Coinbase, right? So if you want to trade USD, you need to actually trade from US servers. So all these things we, we need to take into account. So yeah, so pretty much five to six queues per each region, per each plan. That's our current setup. And we are still playing with that because, of course, we know we are still not reaching the the speed we would like to. So pretty much, let's say this, every 100 rules, we want another, we need another pot, let's say, which is essentially quite a lot, (laughs) a lot of pots at the end. But that's something we are happy to do, right? Because we, we really want to come with those high speed rule evaluations. If something gets triggered, like if if the market reaches a certain point where an order would be triggered, there is some latency sensitivity because, you know, if, if you hit a certain trigger and then you want to execute an order and then by the time the order gets executed, the price has changed again, you can potentially have significant slippage. Are there methods that you employ to avoid slippage due to latency generally i have to say we we are not ready for high performance trading right for that purpose there are probably better bots especially those bots you run on your own machine close to the exchange right what we are doing we are and what we need to deal with is of course the mass amount of users and mass amount of rules right because typically bots if you buy a bot and you run it on your machine, it's your bot and you run it on your machine and you are the only user of that bot, right? That's not our case, right? And typically even, I mean, it's not even our aim for now, I would say, because the amount of possibilities and the amount of possible strategies you can create with CoinRule is, you know, enormous. Especially, you know, the any coin option we are not aware of any competitor that would, you know, provide such a functionality because it's really, really difficult to scan all the markets on that exchange, right? So that's something that opens a lot of opportunities for us. That's why we do that. So generally, I would say, you know, if you need, you know, really like high performance trading, we are probably not the best solution for you. But if you really want to set up complex strategies, then I think, you know, CoinRule is really perfect for you. Did I answer your question? Yeah, I think you basically did. I mean, the kind of trade that I'm describing is something that high-frequency trading would be sensitive to. Generally, we don't have and we don't see any problems with latency in terms of, I mean, of course, when you are sending a market order. So, you know, you have two options, as I said, market orders and limit orders. That's it, right? Market orders okay, at the moment we evaluate the rule, the price is, I don't know, X, and then we place the order 
And don't, of course, we are using market order. So on the exchange, the price is slightly different. But that's just fine. You know, like our user base, they don't care much about this problem because they can still earn and benefit from from the rule itself, you know, from the strategy they can create. And of course, when you are using limit orders, the problem is still there. It's a little bit better, of course, because you control the limit price. Of course, there is another risk because, you know, we, with limit orders, we use fill or kill option, if you know what I mean. Generally meaning, if there is no one at the other side, the order is canceled immediately, right? So there must be an ask or, you know, bid for your bid or ask, you know, otherwise the, the order is canceled. But generally, you know, like users, they don't have problem with, with that, even with the lack or so. There are, of course, different problems <laughs> that we need to work on. But I said nothing. <laughs> Did you mention you have your own fund that you're trading to test out the platform? Yeah. Can you talk about what are the rules that you execute in your own fund? <laughs> It's not a question for me, I would say, unfortunately, because I don't have that view. My co-founders would probably know a bit more. And I'm not even sure how confidential it is. But what I think I can say, we use definitely rebalance strategies a lot. And they are very performant, actually. Even, you know, on the bear market, rebalancing strategies, they are really good. And then, of course, you know, we do some random trades. Typically, you know, like Oleg is actually managing that, my co-founder Oleg. So I don't have that view, but I think that he's running some other rules, you know, like when there is an opportunity to earn, right? On some new coins, let's say, or, you know, maybe some favorite coins of, of him, you know. But generally, those rebalancing strategies, they are really, really good and performing well. Can you describe what a rebalancing strategy is? Mm -hmm. So generally, I mean, we have some templates about rebalancing strategies, but generally, you know, in the first part of the rule, you know, you take a look at the market and you want to actually sell the best performing coin that you own, right? And then at the same time, pretty much you buy another coin, which is currently a bit down, but has an opportunity to be up, right? And you do that uh, on a regular basis. So let's say once a day or two times a day, depending on your taste, right? But yeah, that's generally it. You know, you sell something with profit and then you buy something which can, you know, be profitable potentially. Got it. So essentially you have a portfolio of different assets and at certain moments, you're going to want to sell, maybe Solana increases a ton, and then you sell some of your Solana profits in order to keep your portfolio at a certain percentage of Solana. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, I mean, you're trading with real money, and I imagine the danger of a software bug can be quite severe. You don't want to end up like one of these horror stories of trading platforms that went haywire and lost traders a bunch of money. So how do you test your trading systems? That's a really, really good question. I mean, we do a lot of smoke tests. That's the first thing. We run our own rules, right? Even on the fund, and we have also test fund, you know, so we also run 
quite a lot of test rules, even, you know, randomly, not randomly, like regularly. And every time there is a new functionality, we run our own rules on that functionality as well to be sure that everything is correct, right? That's a small test. But then, of course, I mean, you know, we have unit test and integration test. It's not perfect. We know that because we started, you know, as a really smart startup a while ago, and we were trying to move forward. And we did it, right? We grown a lot. And now we, let's say, I think, yeah, we have a team of 12 people, 12 developers, and we are moving forward, right? We moved to Kubernetes. We are trying to refactor a lot of things, actually, because not everything is perfect, but it really works. And then, of course, you know, with every new code, we do write, you know, unit tests and integration tests. We really try to be in that place. But it's correct and it's true that, you know, we didn't have those tests from the very beginning, right? Because we were just, you know, moving forward. And I think we were doing a proper startup journey in terms of, you know, we tested the actual product manually, you know, <laughs> like a few years back. And then, you know, we were just, okay, okay, this is making us profit, you know, let's just put it out, right? <laughs> so it's incredible journey, I can say. And, you know, what we achieved for a couple of years, you know, I think it's it's really great. <laughs> Do you have any horror stories of a misconfigured platform where you have ended up executing some damaging trades? I mean, generally, we don't typically have problems with damaging trades. I mean, the only thing what can happen pretty much is that something is not triggered, right? And yeah, I mean... I want to be honest, so it happened. <laughs> it happened a few times. And we always analyze what's happening, right? We know pretty much very well because we have a lot of logs, like really like terabytes of logs from all the rules. So we, we can analyze what's happening. And yeah, we used to have problems with the collector, let's say, you know, the part of the system collecting market data. And like really like months back, we, we really didn't have much alerts on that. Now we do. And with, you know, every incident, we try to be better, of course, and try to come with some measures preventing that particular issue to happen again. But yeah, recently, I need to say that we, we had some problems with the migration to Kubernetes, especially because it's really, really difficult to test it on, on staging environment. But generally, what we do, we communicate with users. We are very open. And if there is a problem, typically our users get to know very fast, right? Because when we introduce something, within a few minutes, they know. So, you know, when we introduce something and it's not working as it should, they know that and they, they say that on a Telegram channel very quickly. So we are able to, you know, respond very quickly as well. If there is something we miss. Sometimes it's happening because, of course, you know, like even with tests, you don't always cover every single scenario, right? That's the beauty and the problem of our rule wizard and the rule engine that, you know, you have really like thousands of possibilities. And we are typically testing, you know, rules, let's say like 5, 10, 15 rules, different scenarios. But, you know, we can't easily test every single scenario, right? And even like, let's say every week from users, we get to know a scenario or the strategy that we have never 
thought about, you know, like, <laughs> it's really amazing, like how different people think about our system, how, you know, they try to, you know, build strategies that we were not aware of, right? So it's not definitely possible to cover everything. But yeah, we listen community and we really try to react promptly if there is anything. The back end, what is actually deployed to Kubernetes, tell me about the programming languages and other systems that you're using, any web services or abstractions you can describe. Sure. Let's say from the very beginning, we said back in 2016, I said, actually, let's use Node.js, right? So pretty much everything is written in Node. Why is that? I mean, generally, it's actually cheaper, right? We could use, you know, Python or, you know, Golang or so, but, you know, like, it's much cheaper from the, you know, company perspective and easier to find, you know, Node.js developers, right? So pretty much everything is written in Node. And related to the other stack we use, so we use MongoDB. That's our primary database. For a couple of services, we also use Postgres on RDS. MongoDB, currently, we have our own cluster. We don't have any third-party service, but actually we are thinking to use managed service for that. So it's subject to change. And we also use Redis for caching, for for streams, for, you know, market data updates using the PubSub channels and all this stuff. And we use Redis quite a lot. It's really a big part of the system. At the very beginning, we actually started all the system. We started with Lambdas, right, on AWS. So even the engine, you know, APIs, everything was on Lambda. Then we, of course, very soon realized that it's slow for us and it has some limitations, a lot of them. So we moved to, you know, like EC2 instances running on PM2. And then the API was still running on Lambdas and cron jobs, you know, and all these SQS consumers, for example, because we still use SQS as well for a couple of things like historical things. But generally we are slightly moving to Kubernetes fully. So pretty much the stack is Redis, MongoDB, and everything running on Kubernetes currently, even those jobs and a couple of lambdas, historical lambdas. And what else? What else? I think that's pretty much it. It's relatively simple. It was very complex a few months back, but with new power, which came a few months ago, we just decided to refactor these things and simplify the architecture, right? Because before we were using three different regions, you know, US, UK, and uh, Europe. And then, you know, the managing that, you know, those clusters and replicas and everything in three regions, it was very difficult, very complex. We used to have problems with that, you know, because, for example, we were monitoring European replicas, you know, with alerts, but not those US, UK replicas. And there was an issue, an incident like two months back that actually US replica was disconnected from master you know and we were not getting data and yeah users started to complain and we were we were like okay but everything seems to work you know and then we realized it's not working actually so there were a lot of issues because of that complicated in our architecture and infrastructure and so we the, the aim was to simplify everything so currently we run 
from a single region, even if we need actually multiple regions. So we use, you know, cross-regional proxies to actually send, you know, those API requests to exchanges from different IPs from different regions. And yeah, I think that's pretty much it. You mentioned something interesting there about the geolocation of trade execution being relevant. When I think about platforms like Binance or Coinbase, I imagine them as having API gateways that are all across the world. So what exactly is the importance of geolocating your execution? Or can, can you talk through that in more detail, You the mm-hmm. proxy that you're discussing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this problem is probably related only to two exchanges we support currently. One is Coinbase. Typically, you know, if you live in UK and you want to trade pounds, British pounds, right, then you need to trade from UK servers. If you travel, you know, and you need to use VPN because otherwise you are able to connect to your account, you can trade, but you can't trade pounds, right? You can trade, I don't know, using USDT, but you can't trade pounds. The same with, you know, euro and US dollars. So there was a need and it started with Coinbase back to, I don't know, 2019 or so, that we needed a solution to be cross-regional, right? So we were using, you know, database replicas and cache replicas and, you know, rule engine machines in those three regions to be able to actually trade those, you know, fiat currencies. Then, you know, Binance US came, right? And you can't trade on Binance US outside of the US, right? So there was a second need. And, you know, we are from Europe, right? So like all of us. So generally, you know, it was another platform or another exchange that we needed to solve. I mean, we already had a solution for Coinbase, so it was it was pretty much simple. But, you know, maintaining the infrastructure in those three regions, it was very difficult. You know, and the latency, of course, was very problematic there because, you know, every time, for example, like maintaining a replica of Redis in the US, even using the VPC peering, you know, and these things, when that replica restarted, it required to load data, you know, synchronized with master, right? The master was in Europe. And then it took even like, oh, I don't know, like 30 minutes, 40 minutes to actually load those data. Right? We are talking about a lot of gigabytes of data. And then, you know, it was difficult. So when that happened, you know, like that US engine was using data, which were, let's say, 30 minutes old right? When that incident happened. So the need of using a proxy was really important. Actually, what I need to say, that need came a little bit later because there was another need before. You know, like exchanges, they rate limit your requests, right? And what is very difficult in our work or in our service is to maintain like pool of IPs, right? Because, like, you can't send everything from a single IP. You know, they would ban us, right? Or they would slow us down. Right? We need to back off if they say, hey, you should back off. We need to back off, right? In that case, we can miss some trades. So there was a real need we saw in our logs 
that it really happens sometimes that you know some our engines some our servers they really had problems with that and we asked binance we are in kind of direct touch with binance support and they told us the only possible way because we can't increase those limits for you the only possible way is to use an, an ip pool right so we realized, okay, we need to use then uh, that IP pool. We need to use some kind of proxy. And then, you know, the other need came again, you know, like the other need about the infrastructure. So we said, okay, so we should actually run everything from Europe as, you know, Europe is our primary data center in Germany. So we need to run everything from here and we need to use a proxy. We need to use some kind of proxy system to be able to first trade from different IPs, from different regions, even if everything, the en full engine is running in Europe. And the second need was, of course, we want to scale the number of IPs up to the maximum. What was quite funny is the Binance, there is a limit of 70 IPs. It's a hard limit. 70 API keys, right? Because as a Binance user, you need to whitelist those IPs, right? It's quite a new thing that came, I don't know, like six months ago. You need to whitelist IPs, otherwise your API keys will be working only for 90 days, I think. And then you need to re-enable them somehow. That's not user-friendly, right? So we needed to whitelist those IPs and there is a limit of 70 IPs. But what was actually a bit funny is that there is another limit they didn't tell us about that. And the limit is actually 250, I think, characters on that field. So as a user, if you put all the IPs separated by space, it's a one, you know, field <laughs> which has 250 characters. And it's not 70 IPs. It's actually like something like 36 IPs or so, depending on the, on the length of those IPs, right? So we were like, okay, so the limit is actually not 70, it's like 35 for us. Currently it's okay, so we have three regions, 35 IPs in each, so it's it's relatively good. At some point, once we will have to scale because of the amount of users, whatever, then we will probably have to come with different regions or, of course, different set of IPs for some users. Right, because it's like on on a user or API key level. So that's actually a funny story. We're nearing the end of the time, but I just want to close off by zooming out and get a sense for where you see the platform going. I think people could obviously build uh, sophisticated automated trading on top of this. I could also see people building things like robo-advisors on top of your platform but that's probably not what you're focused on. But maybe you could tell me how you see the platform evolving over time and if there are any analogs to the past, I don't know, other popular trading platforms you could compare it to. Yeah, so there are two things to mention, right? Technically, we really want to move forward quickly, right? With features, etc. So we do a lot of refactoring now and nowadays, which unfortunately leads to a fact that, you know, we don't deliver new features as quickly as our users would wish. It's something that we kind of have these days, like these weeks, let's say. But we are, we are moving there. And the idea, I mean, the vision 
of coin rulers, of course, like when I start with simple things like introducing more and more indicators, like a lot of users are asking for, let's say, RSI increase, right? That's not what we currently have, but it's relatively simple to do so. It's just that we, as a part of that work, we want to refactor the bits behind, right? So it takes a bit more time. So these are simple things. The long vision is, of course, you know, to move to other, you know, more traditional assets. Because crypto is fine, but, you know, to be able to run our strategies or, you know, rules that are similar to crypto rules on actually, you know, stocks, commodities, that would be, you know, massive, right? There is no such tool. Or if so, it's very expensive, right? On CoinRule, you just pay, you know, simple monthly fee and that's it. You know, it's not like very expensive. It's not something that is targeting to really like professional traders or But funds, there's also like right? the, the element here that I think Robinhood has really opened up how many traders there are in the world. And so there's lots of what you might call semi-pro traders and they want they might want a tool that has some of the functionality of the really big, expensive, old platforms that enable automated trading, but they want a better user experience, a more modern user experience, and it seems like you're targeting that direction. Yeah, 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 I would say so. But generally, I mean, Robinhood is doing their job really well, but they don't offer what we can offer, right? We want to be more like even more user-friendly and, you know, to bring something that is not here, you know, for really like using the, the AnyCoin feature or all the other opportunities and the variation of, you know, what you can create, that's really powerful. And that's, that's the way we want to go. And of course, we want to open it for even like, you know, decentralized exchanges we already play with some prototypes. And then, of course, you know, traditional assets, as I said, that's something that, you know, we really want to go there. And I believe we are on the right track. Cool. Well, Zinek, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Jeff.